This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And in this episode, I have the pleasure of introducing my good friend and chief everything officer of Wine and Spirits Spoken Here Communications, Tim McDonald. Tim has experience with all types of media, national accounts, wholesale distributors, restaurant and retail segments. Best of all, Tim has served as wine judge at over 200 wine and spirits competitions here in North America, which is actually how we met. He's currently the chair of wine judging at the Las Vegas Global Wine Awards and the chief judge at the Central Coast Wine Competition. Tim speaks frequently on assembled panels and at many industry wine events. And I got to tell you, Tim, it is an absolute pleasure to have you here, albeit virtually, on the Vine Guy podcast. Thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Uh, glad to be here and uh, participate in one of the cool blogs that are out there on the subject of wine. So, you know, I always ask all my guests, I pretty much start most of my interviews this way. There had to be an aha moment somewhere along your life's path where you tried a wine or somehow something happened where you got into wine. I know you kind of have a pretty interesting story behind that. Can you, can you share it? Yeah, when I was growing up in Las Vegas, back in the um, 60s and 70s, I was lucky to be a server at the Stardust Hotel. Not only did I get a bit of a wine bug, but I also learned how to eat foods that I didn't necessarily grow up with. And so working there at the Stardust, I was lucky to be in a environment that was steakhouse. It was before there were actually steakhouses. You move from the coffee shop to the steakhouse, and then I got to work in the showroom where the Lido de Paris uh, review was. Ooh la la. And yeah, it was really cool. And during that period of time, when I really wasn't 21 yet, although nobody knew that, you know, there'd be a, a little leftover and a bottle of Rene Lalou. Uh, mom had a premium cuvee back then that was kind of cool. And, uh, or someone would leave a, a wine in a bottle of Pomard or Chateauneuf or Puy Pousset. And frankly, I didn't grow up drinking when I was legal age, jug wine. I kind of liked, um, seven fifties of French wine and Italian wine and, and Vegas, as you know, is a 24-hour town, so we get off work at 2 o'clock in the morning uh, and go across the street to Sherry's Liquors, and we could buy a bottle of DRC for 25 bucks. Get out. Now, I will confess that although we loved it, we'd, we'd buy fancy wine, and I didn't know it was Pinot Noir at the time. But as I became more and more curious about the French wines that we were enjoying while we were unwinding after working in the showroom. So th this is like two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. We'd go home and we'd play guitar and we'd drink Echazo and Richberg and DRC and, you know, all sorts of things, not knowing that it was anything special. Wow. And then I started reading and I got the bug because I started on the top tier uh, versus the entry level or the more typical way that I think people get exposed to wine. So did you grow up with wine in your house? I mean, was this something nope. you were exposed to? Nope. Mom was a registered nurse. 
pretty much uh, was a teetotaler from Hibbing, Minnesota. And my father was a stagehand. So uh, he had a cocktail or two, but he had them, I'm sure, at the hotel that he worked at. Because a lot of times, you know, if you're a stagehand, uh, you got two shows to do, maybe three shows to do. And there's breaks and they go to the coffee shop and they eat. And uh, I'm sure that uh, he had a beer or uh, I don't think he was a wine drinker, <laughs> probably a cocktail. But nothing you had in your household to, you know, sort of nope. move you along in that direction. Interesting. Okay. No, once in a while, mom would have a bottle of Manischewitz. I'm not sure why, um, but I tasted it and I, I thought it was fine, albeit a bit sweet. And I never had a sweet tooth, so our iced tea was not with sugar. And uh, I just, when I first started drinking glasses of wine, a little leftover in a bottle from a, a party of two, let's say, you know. And, and at the Lido, uh, they had a two drink minimum or something like that, you know, where most people would order highballs. But then you'd explain to them and show them the wine list that we have these really cool things. And if you don't want a seven and seven today, you know, a nice bottle of Asti Spumante or uh, where they had Pomard and they had uh, oh, yeah. and so, you know, getting them a bottle of wine and, and, and mo many times, they, you know, the guests after the show was over, they leave a little bit for me. So it was kind of nice. So, Tim, I understand that that's how you caught the wine bug when you were in Vegas. But how did you actually make a career out of wine? When I uh, had left the uh, showroom and worked uh, in a restaurant called The Tillerman, uh, there was a gentleman that called on the account that worked for this uh, small wine distributor that Larry Ruvo and Steve Wynn owned called Southern Nevada Wine. And I thought, gee, how neat to, it would be to have a job in the daytime instead of at night. And when I moved to uh, Honolulu, mainly because I was tired of Las Vegas and I had an opportunity to work at the Hilton Wine Village. And I ended up during a brief uh, United strike, the economy kind of tanked over there for tourism. And I ended up working for McKesson Wine and Spirits as a sales representative, calling on Waikiki accounts and ultimately the military out there in Oahu. And I had transformed from being a nighttime person, you know, where you got home at two o'clock in the morning or whatever, to getting up in the morning, <clears throat> just like everybody else, <laughs> and carrying a bag and calling on accounts. And, and we sold uh, both spirits and wines uh, to restaurants and to the ABC chain. And then later I got into the military uh, piece and I just had so much fun uh, learning and uh, about the suppliers and learning about, you know, what customers there uh, needed or wanted from a salesperson. And lucky for me, I was very successful with the Seagram brands. And the Seagram folks said, hey, would you like to come work for us? In 1983, I moved from Hawaii to San Francisco and was their first chain store manager for Seagram Distillers. I did a lot of headquarter calls here in California uh, to Safeway, Albertsons, Lucky, food stores. Uh, Costco didn't exist yet, and any chains that uh, existed in California, uh, Northern and Southern, we would, uh, and the funny thing was, is that back then the, um, you didn't have a necessarily an exclusive distributor. So you'd make the calls without the distributor person which we call today a work with, uh, mainly because 
there were two or three or four wholesale distributors that carried those products. So we never talked prices. We talked generalities and floor displays and advertising, you know, when uh, you wanted to get in the ads, whether it was uh, Seagram 7 or uh, Seagram's Gin or whatever it happened to be. And then fortunately for me, after a year, I ended up being a state manager covering Alaska and uh, Nevada. And one day I got another promotion and was in National Accounts Restaurant Hotel and they moved me to Chicago. And I spent three and a half years there. I really enjoyed working for Seagram. That was one of the classiest companies to work for at the time. Did you eventually move on from there? Yeah, after nearly five years, my wife's here from California. She, she suffered through the winters of Chicago and uh, me traveling 80% of the time. You know, um, we came back to California and I worked for a distributor for a short time. And then Hugh Blind, which uh, is now called Diageo, hired me in the same sort of role in national accounts where I called on everything from an El Torito chain to uh, Weston Hotels up in Seattle. And Miss Lisa, after 35 years of being with her, I think it was a good move to uh, go back to California. Otherwise, you can't take a California girl out of California. <laughs> it's tough. I've tried. It doesn't work. And we went back and we ended up uh, ultimately having a, a son and moving to, we moved to Napa about 25 years ago, stayed in the industry. In fact, uh, my wine judging started with uh, Weston Hotels because they used to decide their core wine list in a blind environment, just like you and I do at the, at the judgings. And they would pick their core list for the year. And there were always a couple of suppliers that were included by suppliers, I just mean uh, sales uh, management, whether it be, uh, I remember I met John Gay uh, from Rosemont there and a couple of others uh, from St. Michelle that were invited to sort of taste along with the food and beverage folks. It was usually around 20, 25 people. I had a lot of fun with that. And one day, Jerry Mead said to me, you need to start judging in the real judgings. And I morphed into the world of PR in 1994, right after they had purchased Glen Ellen. And Ron Batori, who was in PR at Hubline, uh, moved to Thailand and they needed someone. And they asked me to do that. And I said, sure. Do I get to keep my company car? <laughs> <laughs> when, when was the seminal moment, though, in working with, as you said, you were working with Seagrams, which I traditionally associate with spirits right uh, but there, there had to be a seminal moment somewhere along the way where you pivoted towards wine was do you remember I, when i got to go to chicago and work for national accounts with laddie weiss uh seagram was a totally agreed known for spirits but they owned paul masson they had oh. they had mum they had b and g they owned sterling they had a Taylor California Cellars, which at the time was actually quite large. Yeah, they covered a lot of bases. Uh, Great Western, remember Great Western out of New York? Absolutely. In fact, I, I almost got the champagne, excuse me, the sparkling business <laughs> at Hyatt uh, with Great Western. But this upstart company from Napa came in with Domaine Chandon and it ended up being their house, wine, their house uh, uh, sparkler. The nerve of those people. Yeah. And we didn't have mum quite yet. So it was in, still in development. 
So it was in Chicago where you really developed your interest in wine and then you came back out to California and that's when Hubline came into your life? Yep. Okay. Yep. And I, uh, at Hubline, we sold the, the book as well, which would have included Beaulieu Vineyard um, mm. and Ingle Nook, Napa. Christian Brothers became part of that portfolio at one point. And, and then we had a nice portfolio of Italians. Remember Filippo de Bellardino? Yeah. Yeah, he had, uh, you know, everything from Lungarotti to Ciretto to uh, Mastro Berardino, uh, Monsanto, uh, Caparzo. Uh, and I got to take my first trip to Italy in the late 80s uh, and I visited all the properties. And once you've visited a country after you've been in California, you know, and then you get to go someplace else, the light goes on in your head that, oh my goodness, they have buildings that have dust on their shelves that's older than our culture. And oftentimes, you know, they were fourth, fifth, sixth generation producers with great stories to tell. Once you start learning and you remain curious, I believe that it's up to you you know, to do something with that. So I stayed really curious. Doug Frost, a good friend of the industry, uh, insisted that I take the uh, first level MS. And I said, what do I need to do that for? And he says, oh, just come up to Seattle. We'll have fun. We'll go to dinner and it'll, it'll be a hundred questions. You'll be fine. So I went up there and I joined the Society of Wine Educators. I got my first tier master psalm. But I realized that education was a powerful tool if you're going to be in this industry, the most important thing about wine is to stay curious. I was one of those folks that just really liked having trivia. And once you get to go to Italy or you get to go to France or you get to go to Spain. There's always, you know, a wine region to visit. And I come back from those trips energized and excited because I yeah. feel like it's just adding you know, layer upon layer of, of my wine knowledge. And I have to say, you are the prime example, Tim. You meet the nicest people. In the, uh, I've, I've been absolutely feel blessed knowing you and, and other fellow wine judges. And that's where I'm going to actually kind of take a conversational lane change is I want to kind of talk a little bit about the wine judging because, you know, you're, you're kind of the standard bearer of our wine judge domestically. Tell me a little bit about the life of the wine judge. What, is, what does it take to be a wine judge? How, how do you get into it? Well, getting into judging wine um, requires uh, sort of a base understanding of wine tasting. And certainly I enjoy it every time for 25 years plus. The biggest benefit is the people part. And I look forward to it. It's like camping with wine. And we're all comrades, colleagues, and we really get together in this fellowship, if you will, of trying to find the best wines that showed up that day, knowing that it's not comprehensive where there's, you know, a hundred thousand wines to taste. It's whoever entered. And whether it's the California State Fair or the San Francisco Wine Competition, uh, I do Central Coast, which means it's very narrow in that the wines that are there are only from the Central Coast, where in San Francisco, it's international. So you do get uh, a variety of things from uh, all over the world. But the, the relationships that you develop with individuals like 
Dr. Rowald Hepp from Schloss Volrad, or my buddy, dear friend, Kevin Vogt, formerly of Delmonico's and Emerald's uh, Empire, and now has a little shop here in Yonville. Uh, and Master Sommelier. And a Master Sommelier, and uh, he got his pin in 79. And you meet a uh, distributor, retailer, restaurateur, and then, of course, my favorite category are journalists. Ah, uh, now you, you mentioned that you began with the Western Hotel Beverage Team. How long have you been judging wine and spirits competitions? Uh, about about thirty years. Wow, you um, look a day over twenty-five. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the Irish gene in me, or something. Uh, I don't know. Uh, the the reason I like it so much is um, is the people part, but you also. Like Wilford Wong always said to me that it's really good to be an extreme taster and to be flexible and to be kind. And sometimes, you know, you're in a category, uh, let's call it uh, Chardonnay, which is enormous, right? Mm -hmm. Right. The thing about Chardonnay is they're all very different. So when you taste something that's been uh, grown in a like up here in the North Coast uh, area of uh, California, it's different than tasting Chardonnay that, let's say, came from Australia or France. So you kind of learn things while you're judging, too. And for me, I'm just always trying to find the best example that I think a consumer would like. So I try not to bring my own preferences and, in some cases, biases to a category. You know, uh, you and I have judged together, and uh, sometimes you, you're surprised what you pick, and you don't chosen. know. Any, <laughs> yeah, you chosen to tell you. <laughs> and you don't know until the whole thing's over that you pick your favorite cab. For example, one time I remember uh, it was uh, from Paso. A lot of times, cab that wins is from Napa or Sonoma, and occasionally it might be from Australia. But but the fun about it is the reveal. And so in San Francisco, where you and I have judged for a long time, you got, you know, three or 4,000 wines, maybe 18 to 20 panels. So there's 50, 60 ladies and gents there. And then the last day is so cool because you get to taste what everybody else sent up to the finals. And we vote by uh, acclamation, uh, which is a process that's really fair and square. And I am constantly amazed that when you get to the end and it's all said and done and then we get to go in the back room of course and uh, see uh, who's white wine and who's red wine and who's rosé or sweet wine and uh, certainly there's bubbles but uh, it's fun and uh, it's it's educational probably you do the same thing I do I keep my sheets you get to see all the brands that you got to judge for the two days that you were judging sometimes you pick a gold medal that uh, might just be a nice little $9 wine or something. Exactly. I have to say, I've actually had that experience where, not that I'm necessarily a wine snob, but you know, there is a kind of a part of me that associates quality with price. And it's always great judging these competitions because it brings you back to reality. Yep. Right. As you said, when you get that email with the big reveal and I go through my tasting notes and there's a wine that I genuinely loved, and it turns out to be a $9 Sauvignon Blanc, it's a real treat to kind of have, for lack of a better word, to be recalibrated. Yes. And the reality of what does America drink is probably better represented 
in a judging that's a good size like San Francisco and others because these are commercially available as opposed to high-end uh, allocated perhaps expensive types of wines. We don't uh, get the uh, Philippe Melka, you know, darlings from Napa because they sell everything they produce and they really don't need to enter any wine competitions. But typically these producers do send their wines to one or two of those publications where they have scoring as an important component. And I've been friends with Marvin and the gang at Wine Spectator since the early 80s. Talk about curiosity. If you're not subscribing to a couple of three magazines and reading them, how are you going to learn about Germany? You know, how are you going to learn about what's going on in Argentina if you don't pay attention? So you learn that the top tier is nice, but the place I find the most enjoyment is where you discover that your favorite wine was, you know, $14. Well, I think the wine industry is very fortunate to have you. And I'm very excited now that we get to actually taste a few wines together, even though we're about a thousand miles apart by my estimate. But yep. this is fun. This is going to be, you know, you have your wines lined up in front of you. I have the same wines lined up in front of me. So with that, let's do it. <laughs> Ah, uh, um, so one, one of my favorite clients is a pretty large crowd of wines, but I get to represent a couple of them that I'm fond of. The first wine that we're going to have is the Coupe Chardonnay Wine Block, which is nationally available. Uh, Bob Lindquist, a few years ago, uh, sold to uh, Vintage Wine Estates, which is Pat Roney and uh, many, many brands. Uh, he started with Gerard. Uh, he's involved with Cundi. He owns Clopigas. But Leticia and Coupe uh, are in my wheelhouse of responsibility. And they're both uh, great examples of uh, Central Coast wines in the Santa Barbara part of it. So that's where this wine is coming from? The... Yep. Okay. Coupe uh, name means poppy, which is the state flower of California. It is a Chumash Indian word for poppy. And a lot of people have heard of Bien Nacido in Santa Maria. Yep. Um, typically, very cool climate kind of culture. The wines, uh, he, he was originally one of the original Rhone Rangers. So in addition to um, making Chardonnay, let's say, and a couple of other things, the brand has always had a Marsan Rousse, San Grenache, and then Syrah is the big uh, red. So not ever having a, a Cabernet per se as part of his uh, crowd of wines. Well, back to the Chardonnay. It's the 2018 Coupe. And that's, by the way, spelled Q-U-P-E, I should mention. And this is the Y block from Santa Barbara County. And I have to say, I'm really enjoying this. It's uh, got a, a lovely nose. I'm kind of getting a little bit of citrus, nutmeg, even kind of a, a smoky note to it on the nose, which I really love. It's giving it kind of a lift right out of the glass. And, and in the mouth, it's delicious because the mouthfeel is complete. And that's hard, I think, for particularly in Chardonnay, where so many winemakers try to put uh, maybe an over-oaked stamp on their wines. This is just feels complete and lovely, a little bit of green apple, kind of that orange blossomy citrus going on in there. Yep. Yeah, and it does have a tiny bit of spice too, which is uh, yeah. you know kind of 
lifts that fruit component. Uh, the other thing that I've always liked about coupe, but I think this might be the best one ever, is mm -hmm. uh, it's definitely barrel, you know, uh, barrel fermented, aged in French oak, primarily Francois Frere Burgundy barrels, mm -hmm. of which about 15 or so percent are new. But the alcohol, it's categorically speaking, this wine has almost always been around 13. Wow. Maybe a, maybe a little more some years, maybe a little less some years, but it's a cool climate. You know, the shift in temperature there in that uh, part of California, it, it will be really cold at night. And it can be pretty warm in the daytime during the growing season. So what those diurnal swings represent, at least in this glass, is brilliant acidity. Just really pitch perfect. Yep. And I love the tension between the acidity and the, the kind of fruit and the fermentation process. So you got this tension between oak influence and Lee's influence versus this, you know, perfect balance in pH and acidity. And it just comes yeah. out bright and it makes you hungry. It does. It's, it's an elegant wine. And again, I love the complete mouthfeel in this wine. Well done. What's this? And it will never be more than $22. I was um, just going to ask. <laughs> uh, it $22? Sells at the that's most. A, that's a crowd pleaser. Yeah, and, and, and I think wine.com, where Wilford works, it's uh, $18.99. I've seen it at Whole Foods for 20 bucks and Safeway. So it is fairly available uh, coast to coast. Uh, it's a very popular wine by the glass in some restaurants. Oh, this is delicious. They have always, you know, in my opinion, been a cool climate type of a place, making wines of an extraordinary balance and uh, begging of a food. You know, I'm, it makes me hungry. Just out of curiosity, what would you pair with this? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, at the farmer's market on Tuesday, we have a seafood uh, guy, and he sells uh, Dungeness crab all cracked and ready to go in a nice little uh, Tupperware-like container. So you mentioned uh, the farmer's market is what, Tuesday? Tuesdays and Saturdays. Okay, so I will send you my FedEx number. <laughs> Three Tupperwares of crab, please. That's right. And this, uh, this time of the year in the, in the Bay Area, we get steelhead too, which is kind of neat. Absolutely. Um, I used to fish for steelhead up there off of Stinson Beach. Pretty darn good fish too, uh, especially uh, on the Weber barbecue. Tell me what's uh, in our next class here. And our next glass is Leticia Pinot Noir. And the Leticia uh, Pinot Noir is a Royal Grande in the heart of Santa Barbara. It was uh, picked up by the wine company a couple of years ago. And they're known for making sparkling wine uh, there too. It's one of the hallmarks of Leticia. And this is a Pinot Noir. Again, not anything that you would find expensive. It sells for around $35. They have uh, other offerings there at the winery. You can probably find Leticia Pinot Noir in a grocery store for $27 to $30. Wow. I got to tell you, this is spectacular. It's the 2018 Leticia Estate Pinot Noir, as you said, from Grande <laughs> Valley. I got to tell you, Tim, right off the bat, as soon as I stuck my nose even close to the glass, you just get these beautiful aromas of cinnamon and clove and dark cherry, and I'm not making this up, exploding out of the glass. Just the bouquet on this wine 
is charming and delightful and warm. And I just, I can't wait to take my first sip. I'm, I'm salivating just smelling the wine. Yeah, it has a, a, a little bit more of a, a cranberry added to the dark cherry on the, you know, in the beginning. But what I like about it too, is that it has that, uh, mm. I, I call it the smell of the smell of the holidays when your mom has been making cookies. Exactly. The cinnamon and the clove that are coming up out of that glass. What a mouthful of wine. I mean, it's medium bodied. So, you know, I, I would characterize it this straight down the middle of the, uh, the bell curve in terms of its balance and body, but the flavors are just gorgeous. And I'm picking up that cranberry, almost like a cranberry rhubarb thing yep. on in there, uh, in the center of the palate. And then it just finishes again with those warm baking spices on the back. And, and again, balance is just delightful. The, the acidity is pitch perfect. I like how it's just integrated with the, the fruit and tannin. This is a, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. And I, again, uh, I know a lot of, uh, I have other clients up this way in the Russian River and Carneros area. But for the money, this is a lar- a big value, large in the glass. I think we'll stand up to some of the world-class uh, Pinot Noirs at twice the price. And granted, it's not a DRC, but it's a pretty good drink. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's not the DRC that was $25 back in your youth. No, sir. But I got to tell you, it's a pretty damn good wine for the, what, what did you say? 32 to 35? Yeah. At the winery... If you visited the winery, they have it on the shelf because uh, they have other ones that are more more expensive for 27 bucks. Wow, that's delicious. All right, our next and final wine. I'm excited about this one because this is the wine I'm actually going to put the, the cork back in, so to speak, and have tonight with my street tacos, my Carnitas street tacos. This is the, tell us what's in our, our final glass here. Our final glass, I think, is a benchmark Syrah. And, um, and they make a few, uh, but this is the one that you can get your hands on just about anywhere. Again, it's, it's the same sort of price as the Y Block Chardonnay. The Syrah uh, is a, uh, my favorite go-to red wine when it comes to lamb chops, but it also goes so well with very simple things like well-done hamburgers, etc., and uh, steaks that have a little bit of fat, much like a ribeye. I do like Cabernets, but you know I, I like doing my fair share of supporting <laughs> the Syrah world because Grenache and Syrah are two of the most underrated reds out there, and uh, I believe this is. This is a great example of cool climate effects in the vineyards, and the wines always have that little pop of white pepper. Well, don't keep our listeners in suspense. Sam, you got to tell us what we're drinking. The Coupe Syrah is uh, widely uh, available. It is, I think it's traditionally always been 100% Syrah. It's, got, it's definitely cool climate. got that spicy note to it. Some might even say it's got umami. You know that uh, mm-hmm. that that extra sense, and uh, usually has a you know nice little piece of oak in there, like this does. Uh, but the alcohol is only fourteen, which is great if you think about it. You know, yeah, get up there pretty fast. I don't know of anything in the coupe line that's ever been over fourteen. Oh. It's just one one of those. This is just beautiful. I mean, you know, this is. I mean, just just right off the aromas alone. 
you had mentioned earlier that we do a lot of blind tastings when we judge wines. And I got to tell you, I could pick this out of a lineup that it's a Syrah. If oh, yeah. you put 10 red wines in front of me and said, pick the Syrah, this is the tall poppy. This is the one that's going to stand up. Uh, and it's great. I mean, it's got that wonderful hint of saddle leather. And as you said, that spice, that pepper. But then you get these wonderful flavors of blackberry and black cherry and even a little bit of cola in there that just glide over the tongue. Just a, this is really a pretty Syrah. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the cool climate versions of Syrah are generally my favorites because they have the added benefit of being modest alcohol. They're balanced. They don't have the sweetness. So instead of the sweetness, they've got the spice. Yep. And this also is fairly low in tannin. So it would it's go there. with... The tannins are absolutely there. I mean, I, I can feel them up in the... Uh, yeah, I wouldn't drink not this... Not overpowering. With, no, I wouldn't drink it with like the salmon like you might with the uh, Pinot. Yeah. But this is a Monday through Thursday wine, okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Put, listen, grilled lamb chops. And again, yeah. we're having this... My son made this beautiful carnitas last night with all these warm spices. And I'm very excited about uh, having street tacos tonight with this. Uh, street ta- and the other benefit of this wine, not only does it come in a convenient twisty, but the, I think it Wait, 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 wait. Tell everybody what a twisty is. Oh, a twisty is a screw cap. There you um, go. Th- with the benefit of air, this wine even develops more the second day and even the third day, it becomes more spicy and it becomes more fruit forward at the same time. Well, I'm going to give it a little bit of air now and then uh, hopefully by the time we roll around in a few hours, it's going to be just pitch perfect. I don't doubt it for a moment. (laughs) Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's great seeing you. It's wonderful to connect with you. I miss you. I think that this, uh, I'm just curious about how we're going to get back to a new normal one of these days. And I look forward to it because I look forward to being actually in the same room with you, drinking a great bottle of wine. And thank you for sharing these wines with us today. Could you just remind our listeners the three wines that we just tasted? Sure. The uh, three that we had uh, started out with Coupe, Y Block Chardonnay, about $20, $22 a bottle. Uh, the second wine we had is Leticia, which is uh, the estate wine. So 100% estate Pinot Noir from uh, Royal Grande. That Pinot Noir is, uh, you know, 27 to $30. And the third one, uh, the Coupe Central Coast Syrah 2018, they're all 2018s. Just released, the 2018 Syrah is also around $20, $22. Perfect textbook example of what Syrah ought to be, probably because of that cool climate uh, location that it comes from. Agreed. Thank you again, Tim, for joining me. It's been a pleasure having you today. Thank you for having me, Scott. And uh, we'll see you on the other side, as they say. I look forward to it. That'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, WTOP News Podcast. This episode was produced by Sarah Beth Hensley. And the music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and catch my Wine of the Week shows every Friday on WTOP and WTOP.com. Until the next time, remember, do good, drink well.
To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.